The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a hand break off. I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbreak Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. So, although there are still games to play, I think we all understand that the season basically ended last Thursday. So, we'll try and look forward as much as possible. To do that, I'm joined by the writers from The Athletic, Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas, and also Amy's dog. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's got the most to say. <laughs> What's his name? Rocky. Well, we'll come to him in a short while. Uh, before we get into the post-mortem and what has been pretty much a nightmare of a season, some good news. Willian got his first goal of the season. It was a good one as well, albeit in a meaningless game against poor opposition. And we waited almost an entire season for it. So we were wondering who else we waited a long time, for a long time, uh, to score their first goal for the Arsenal. Um, I know it's obvious I'd like to put forward Thierry Henry in this conversation. Um I don't remember how long it took him to score a goal, but I remember he missed loads of chances. And because he was a converted forward, wasn't he, from the from the wing? Um, and I, I can't say I didn't have my doubts, but uh, he turned out all right in the end. So he's my choice. Amy, what about you? I think I'm going to go for a similarly uh, elite player, um, which is Dennis. And I'm only going to go for it mo- mostly because... Um, a bit like Thierry, in the greater scheme of things, it wasn't really that long a wait. I mean, certainly not by Willian or John Jensen's standards. Um, but I do remember that Arsenal played a cup game against Hartlepool away uh, in the early days of Dennis Bergkamp, and he hadn't scored yet. And um, the headline on the paper the next day had uh, a picture of a very forlorn Dennis Bergkamp with the headline, Hartley Fool. Nice. Yeah, and it was a bit, it was a bit mean, really, because I mean, yes, they weren't the greatest opponent, but they really laid it on thick in terms of media expectations. And I will never tire of watching those first two cracking goals against Southampton in the sunshine at Highbury, because it was such a lovely moment. Because you really, really could feel the happiness of everybody yeah. for him, that happiness of his teammates, the happiness of his manager, the happiness of all the fans. Um, it was a really, it was something you could really, really feel deep inside you, and it was beautiful. So, I'm gonna go, Dennis. Yeah, one imagines if there was a crowd in there, would have been a similar level of happiness for <laughs> Willie Ann, James. Don't you? <laughs> <laughs> There's a great clip. I don't know if you've seen it, but not even Mikel Arteta looks particularly happy when when the ball hits the net. He sort of turns away and say, "Oh, you do that now, do you?" Now. He looks really yeah. frustrated. Yeah. Um, it's a great little <laughs> sort of vignette. But uh, nearly as good as Sam Allardyce cutaways. But let's go yeah, to that that's another true. day. Yeah, true. they were enjoyable. Um, I, I don't he know was like know. fucking Willie and waited all this time to score, and you have to do it now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, he, what it was. In a way, he spoke for all Arsenal fans in that. But there you go. <laughs> For the first um, time ever. Yeah, I think... Do you know what? I mean, I'm still waiting for a goal from Francis Coquelin. I was hoping he might get it the other night while playing for Villarreal. Could have done with that. I'm sticking one in for Arsenal, but it didn't come. Um, I think I've got to say John Jensen, haven't I? Just because no one else has. And it's this sort of iconic Arsenal wait for a goal. 98 games, I think it was. And I mean, you guys will remember better than me, but the, I think there was an expectation built up based on a goal that he'd scored at the Euros, right? That he was a bit of a, yes. a threat from range and it just never quite delivered. Is that right? It was a bit like the Thomas Party shooting thing. Um, right. That's going on. <laughs> not quite, uh, but yeah, he did score bad. an absolutely miraculous goal for Denmark in the Euros. And um, I think, you know, there <laughs> some people subsequently went, oh, well, that's why George bought him. But I think I was slightly underestimating uh, the level of scouting that went on. But... Um, he definitely, it, became, it was a bit of a cult joke with John Jensen that, uh, he, you know, he would have these shots and everyone would go, way, you know, behind the goal, which isn't really what you should be doing when your player takes a shot. But there was a innate comedy value for a while that grew and grew and grew. So against that backdrop, when he finally got the goal, again, there was that kind of extra reaction from everybody in the ground that was... Uh, reacting to the moment as well as the goal in itself and the sort of significance of what it meant to an individual. 
as and someone, yes, I did have the T-shirt. <laughs> Anyone else? No, I didn't have the T-shirt, although I would like to say, and James, I'm sure you'd agree here, as, as people who work in comedy from time to time, not so much lately, obviously, um, it, it was funny, and then it wasn't funny, and then it became funny again. Didn't right. It, after yeah. a certain point, which is what perhaps will happen with Thomas Partey. Um, I don't <laughs> think people are in the laughing mood, though. I don't really get the feeling there's that sort of mentality amongst the fans. But it is, it is um, sort of the great setup for the punchline of that eventual girl, isn't it? I mean, it's it, the kind of delay means that when one eventually hits the top corner in the year 2029 or whatever it might be, <laughs> you know, the place is going to go ballistic. Um, yeah. Yeah, He's invest- we're investing a lot in that goal. Exactly. There'll be T-shirts. It's- I was there for the party. Well, party. You, you were there for the William goal, James. I mean, you could make your own it's personal true. T-shirt. I've got a tattoo, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of make- making a T-shirt just for you. No Where were you when William was scored? Oh, I'd switched off by then, to be honest with you. We're playing West Brom. Who cared? Um, now, by the way, you can subscribe to The Athletic UK right now for a special price of £3.99 for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. So, Thursday was obviously a disaster for the club. The low point, the Gwyneth Paltrow eating bread point, if you like. And for all the talk of being ruthless and what have you, there's a lot of work to do to get us anywhere near the level we've come to expect in the last 25 years. So we thought we'd talk about the things we need to do in the short term and also in the long term. Um, I want to look forward in this podcast, Amy and uh, James. Uh, so I was wondering about, let's talk about who we build the future around. And I guess the listener can assume if we don't talk about them, that we don't want to keep them. Uh, James, it's essentially three lists, isn't it? Players we need to keep at all costs, 50-50s, and players we need to let go if possible and if we can get a fee for them. Yeah, I think so. I mean, 50-50s might be generous in the middle there. I mean, when you think about how many players from this squad you would really shed a tear over if they went, you know, um, there aren't many at all. I think you could probably count them on... Maybe one hand. Well, I've I've got seven. I've You've got, got seven. Let's hear them. Saka, Smithrow, Martinelli, Balogun, Tierney, Partey and Gabriel. That's it's, it. Seven. Yeah. I, I, I mean, do you know, I think, uh, I think some would consider that list a few names long. I think there'd be people who'd say... <laughs> I think there'd be people who'd say, you know, Balogun, who knows? Gabriel, mm. we can't quite tell yet. Partey, not been great of late. Uh, the other names I absolutely agree with, Smith Rowe, Saka, and Rocky agrees too, it sounds yeah. like. Um, Smith Rowe, Saka, Tierney, you know, uh, Martinelli. They're, for me, the sort of gold standard. I can't look past them. They have to be built around. I, I mean, look, Partey, yes, Gabriel, yes. I think they, they look like decent acquisitions and they fit a sort of physical type that is, will be very useful in this squad moving forward. Yeah. Everyone else, I do feel a bit like I could take or leave them. Amy, is that, do you feel the same way about our, um, I was going to say long list, but it's a short list, really? Yeah, it's hard to disagree with a lot of that, but what concerns me is um, that's a hell of a lot of players short of yeah. the sort of squad that you want. The only other thing to factor in is there are a lot of Arsenal players on loan. and Would you want any of them back in your list? Oh, great oh. question. I'd have William Saliba, of course. There's William Saliba, there's Willock, there's Ainsley Maitland-Niles. There are. Um, you know, are these players that make your list, Stoney? Um, can, you, can you get it to double figures? <laughs> can we get an 11? Can we get 11? Team? Yeah. Come on, is let's get point. an 11. Because, no, but that's the point, isn't it, really? Surely, James, we've been 
we're in a position now where we're talking about a squad of what is meant to be a top-level club in the Premier League. And and even of those, of the four that we said are definite, Saka, Smith-Rowe, uh, Tierney and uh, Martinelli, I mean, Tierney's the oldest at 23. That that Sure, we're building for the future, but we can't. We, we can't sell 15 players and buy another 15 in, can we? No, that's not going to happen. And, you know, maybe there's a bit of emotion clouding my judgment as well there. Maybe I am being a little bit harsh, but I feel like being a bit harsh on the Arsenal players yep. at the moment. Um, but I do think, uh, clearly, there's not going to be the scale of change that some fans might want. It's more just an illustration of the fact that how far away we are, you know, and how how many of those names you do kind of feel ambivalent about sort of tells its own story. And there are plenty of players who, you know, I could say, well, I can mount a case for keeping them. But it's more the case that if they left, I I would fancy our chances of getting somebody just as good, you know. And, And I do wonder if, you know, there are a number of players who've been kind of integral to what Arsenal have done in the last few years, been built around for quite a long time. And ultimately, it's been a period in which not a huge amount has been achieved. And so I think a degree of change, a degree of uh, revolution within the squad is going to be necessary. But I, I do think that has to be tempered by a bit of realism about what might be possible in this market. I mean, we can we can probably all list 10 players we'd like to sell, but I think it'd be much harder to list a few clubs who realistically would be in a position to buy them. I just think it's interesting that we're having this conversation and what has been discussed so far and nobody's list has got the player on it who Arsenal were pulling out all the stops to keep last year in the summer. You know, Bamiyang. Would your list have him on? Well, I think it feels to me like a really complex question. It would be a lot easier to have a, a, a straight answer to that, but it feels like there's quite a lot that needs qualifying I'd like to sit and have a really long chat with him uh, before I really give you an answer to that um, or for someone at the club to do so. I'd love to understand whether the relationship with Arteta got damaged somehow and if that's a problem going forward or if it's fine. Uh, I'd love to understand if he just has had a really hard time but his desire and motivation is otherwise as strong as it has been for the, you know, vast vast majority of his career it's obviously been a hugely difficult season for him particularly as well as for the club generally Uh, but he's still uh, by miles Arsenal's best striker and one of the best strikers that you know has been around in Europe for many years in a row you know what this is a fair point I I, it was it was a bit remiss of me not to put him on the list but I, I, I mean as you say, it is a complex question. Um, I mean, have we has that ship sailed to a certain extent because of Arteta's relationship with Aubameyang? It doesn't seem like it's fixed. And yet, James, when he scored the goal against Newcastle the other day, it did give me some hope for the semi-final. Sadly, he hardly got a touch. But, you know, he hit the post a couple of times, but that's it. But um, it did give me some hope. And so maybe he's another name that we think keep him and build the team around where he wants to play. Yeah, there's so many factors in this because, you know, he'll turn 32 this summer um, and he's not really performed to the standard we would expect this year. Granted, there have been a lot of external factors affecting that. Ultimately, Arsenal have made the commitment to Aubameyang. They did last summer when they gave him that contract that Amy's talking about. They fought so hard to get him to sign it um, and they paid big money to get him to sign it too. So I suppose if you're Arteta, if you're Edu and you're looking at the situation, his name has got to be one of those names that you build around. Realistically, there's probably not a market to take him away at the age he is with the money he's on. So it's imperative you begin to extract value from that deal. Um, I I suppose if I'm thinking more from a fan perspective, you know, if you think, could that money magically be allocated to a younger player you'd think that might be a positive thing for the club but I think actually making that happen the mechanics of that are are much more difficult Is there also something about the way we play as well? I mean I think about back to when Arsene Wenger was in charge particularly early on we had a style of play that ran right through the club you know from the youth teams upwards and if you bought players in they bought into the philosophy and it doesn't seem to me Amy that 
the players are buying into Mikel Arteta's philosophy and it's also possible he doesn't quite know what his philosophy is as yet. Yeah, but look at the players who we were buying. I mean, our producer Tayo made a suggestion of, you know, a great game uh, on this day a few years ago uh, when Arsenal beat Everton 7-0 in an end-of-season game. Um, and I went and had a little look at that before coming on. And every clip you think, Jesus, another absolutely magnificent player is <laughs> doing something amazing. Uh, Burkamp, Henri, Pires, I mean, you always talk about them, obviously. Oh, there's Van Persie. Oh, there's Reyes. Yeah, it was just an incredible array of talent. And there was a golden period, for, which is what created that style of play that you're talking about and everybody who came and brought into it. Because, it, you know, once it, had, once it had started, once that pattern of play was happening, everybody just who came in was just desperate to get on and be part of it. Because it, was, it, was, it must have been the most enjoyable football you'd ever play in your life. I completely take your point, Amy, but I go back to what I was just about you to say. You can't expect that of this team. No, but I think about the fact that Thierry Henry wasn't wanted by Juventus. I'm thinking about the fact that Milan let Patrick Vieira go for next to nothing. Dennis did not. Dennis Bergkamp did not do well at Inter Milan before he came to uh, Highbury. I, I mean, obviously it all worked out, but that's the genius of Arsene Wenger that we obviously don't have in charge right now. Yeah, but they also came into a club and a team where there was a huge core there that had certain standards and a certain way of doing things. They might not have had that technical sophistication necessarily, but they walked into a club and a dressing room full of winners. Well, they ain't doing that in a moment, are they? Let's be fair. Um, <laughs> what, um, can I ask about the manager as well? Um, because he did talk quite a bit about uh, uh, a ruthlessness Um do you not think, James, that a club that aspires to being back at the top level would get an experienced and strong manager as opposed to someone who's done a year and a half and taken the club backwards? It's a good question. I think if you look at some big clubs, they have been able to appoint really pretty inexperienced managers. I mean, obviously, Guardiola is kind of an exception in that you know, he is a, clearly a genius and I think on another level to any manager that we currently have, despite the constant comparisons. Some big clubs can survive with an inexperienced manager and some can thrive. I mean, you think of situations which seem absurd in some ways. A guy like Roberto Di Matteo walked into Chelsea and won the Champions League, but he had the dressing room there that made up for it. It's John all about... Terry, it's not It's not Di Matteo. It was the club. I mean, Avram, they got those players got Avram Grant to a Champions League final. That's how well, good they were. And isn't that Amy's point, really, that it's about the quality you have in the dressing room? I think the problem is not in appointing an experienced coach. It's about not having the requisite leadership around that coach. And I mean that both in terms of the dressing room and I mean it in terms of the executive hierarchy. I think you can have a young coach if he's surrounded by the right people, people with a depth and wealth of experience to provide advice, sounding board, you know, uh, to provide oversight and also to provide pure leadership in the dressing room. I don't think Arteta has that. That's not to excuse him, but I think Arsenal's problem is that kind of absence across the board. Yeah. I mean, we've said this quite a bit, the lack of leadership right the way through from the very top through the team. Um, Amy, did the club make a mistake by saying that Mikel Arteta was, um, what are they, he went from, from coach to, I can't remember, they, they changed his uh, designation, didn't they, and basically gave him more power. I mean, should he, should, was that a mistake on Arsenal's part? Um, well, they changed it from head coach to manager. It's all part yeah. of this like, slightly bigger picture um, series of what feels like an endless, interminable restructuring going on at Arsenal. So it begins with uh, essentially Ivan Gazidis reacting to the Wenger years and the power that he had by feeling that it had to be taken away from his replacement. So they made a big deal of sticking the uh, plaque on Unai Emery's door and it's saying head coach when he was appointed. And that was part of the big uh, brave new world of moving on to a different kind of model. Um, 
with uh, the executives there to take care of technical direction, recruitment, etc., and take that away from the manager. When Mikel came in, um, and you know, a lot of you know already people are starting to go. Uh, people were were leaving uh, from various executive positions. He came into this mess and did more than just be a head coach. I think that that feeling was amplified as far as the club was concerned because of COVID-19. So not only did he kind of, the club was, a you know, the dressing room was uh, difficult. The team was imbalanced. He tried to sort all that out by coming in with his non-negotiables and, and making an impact and trying to change the culture from within. But he also kind of had going back to that word leadership a leadership role in handling how the club and everybody was was coping with the challenges of football stopping because of covid and then coming back behind closed doors and then he won the cup and got arsenal back into europe which all in all was pretty impressive i think quite possibly the club felt at that point that if they don't almost reward him that they've got this genius on their hands that somebody might come and plunder and I, I suspect that there was a little bit of that, a little bit of genuinely wanting to reward Arteta for a great and important start, but also feeling that they needed to, you know, protect their investment, if you like. Um, so they decided to make him manager, which is going back a bit more to this the level of authority over matters just beyond the, you know, the first team that Arsene had. Um, now, maybe in hindsight, for an inexperienced coach who hit the ground with a bunch of ideas and, and a new personality. Actually, you know, you, you're almost going on this crest of a wave, maybe, that he needed it to be a bit more steady than rather than say, great, you can take care of everything. Because it's obviously looked like a lot this season. And maybe he would have been better off just purely um, having more of a head coach type of role uh, with more support that you would get if you've got a different structure. But again, Arsenal seem to be kind of caught between their sort of reacting, something's not working, we'll try and change it, but will people go, will people come? Um, and, and they haven't yet found the formula. You know, the magic formula, it feels miles away. Well, looking at Manchester United, because that, that's quite analogous with a manager, long-term manager, had a lot of success. Um, uh, Sir Alex Ferguson left them in a better position, James, and it still took them six or seven years, and they and they're still not challenging for the Champions League or the Premier League right now. No, but I, I do think it's worth pointing out that they are in a a strong position in the Premier League. I mean, they're second in the Premier yeah. League, that not too far away from Man City, and they have a, an inexperienced manager who has been through some difficult times and been through some wobbles. I think. I think if you appoint someone who is a rookie, essentially, and Solskjaer had a lot more experience than Arteta when he took the uh, United job, I think you have to accept, you have already accepted, haven't you, that there's going to be a degree of uh, learning that has to happen. I think my point, and I, I, I really, I'm sort of harping on this, but it is something I feel really strongly, is just simply that Arsenal don't really have the infrastructure to support that. No. Um and actually, consequently, I think if you said, well, would they be better off with a very experienced manager? I think, you know, potentially the answer is yes. They might be more comfortable, you know, in that environment, require less support, require require less guidance. But Arsenal have made this commitment to Mikel Arteta. I think Amy's absolutely right. They wanted to reward him after not just the FA Cup, but also everything he did with COVID. They obviously couldn't give him a pay rise because he just spent quite a long time presenting to the players, explaining why they should take a pay cut. So a change of title was quite a logical way to reward him without doing it fiscally. Um, but I, I think it, it is in some ways a backward step because it returns Arsenal to a model which has a greater dependency on the coach. The point of you know having a head coach and a technical director is that in theory, you should be able to plan for the long term. You should be able to change the coach without it being too, too much of an interruption. Arsenal now find themselves where Mikel Arteta is a, a very important, very, very powerful person at Arsenal and changing him would be hugely disruptive and Arsenal have sort of created that for themselves. Um, 
Teo has pointed out, by the way, that United can also chuck 100 million quid at a problem every 18 months. And I think that is worth pointing out. They do have bigger spending power than us, even For though sure. even though our owner actually is worth more than the Glazers, um, as far as I understand. Um, I'm assuming, Amy, that you don't want us to end up in the Europa League, Europa Conference League. I can't imagine it makes a huge amount of difference financially. Um, it does feel like somewhere you really don't want to go. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, uh, it's, it feels like massive wooden spoon territory. We'll get some new away trips though, won't we? Yeah, absolutely. Tajikistan, have you ever been there? <laughs> uh, I'll give it a go. Um, I, th- I think I'm torn slightly because rightly or wrongly, and probably it's really stupid, I'm quite proud of the consecutive years that Arsenal have spent in Europe. Yeah, and yeah. you know, t- on a technicality, Arsenal would continue that <laughs> proud run in the Europa yes. Conference were they to qualify. On a practical level, it seems like it. You know, the Europa Europa League light sounds really terrible. I mean, what's the music going to be? <laughs> uh, I mean, there's point. all sorts of things I'm quite worried about about the Europa Conference. Um, you know, who's the sponsor? I mean, we've had Hankook and that's like, ha ha, great joke. But what what are we dealing with here? Like, I don't know. Um, it's... Uh... Ed Sheeran's gone, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, missed out he can provide the music and the sponsorship, couldn't he? Oh my he? God. Ipswich is done. I definitely done. don't want to be in, uh, in, the, in the Europa <laughs> Conference then. Um, but I'm sure that, I mean, again, even from the playing point of view, there, there is something about all these extra European fixtures that, can be beneficial in terms of trying out young players. You think yes. about Balogun, for example, and you know game time that can be and experiences that can be picked up with using players who are either uh, more fringe players in the squad that you still need because you're going to eventually need them at some point or another with injuries and suspensions and so on, and you keep them ticking over. Uh, plus, trying to hopefully get some of the the next generation Aziz, who's coming through, um, who looks like a really talented player. I'd love to see him get some some proper football. Um, if you're just relying on the League Cup, uh, you know, waiting for the FA Cup early rounds, don't know how long that, you know, that competition will be sustained. It's not a lot of sort of spare football. Um, on the other hand, if you want to do that thing where you're focusing entirely on the Premier League and regrouping, I can see the benefits to that too. So I, I don't know, I suppose is my answer. I'm going to sit on the fence. No, I'm yet no, to be I... convinced if I want to be in the Conference League or not with the exception of worrying about the music. <laughs> well, James, I mean, this is the point that Amy made. Chelsea didn't have European football one season, won the title that year. Now, of course, they did have Eden Hazard playing for them. At, you know, and this is a, um, you know, uh, fit Eden Hazard. We don't have anyone with that ca- in that calibre, but it, do you not think it might help in some ways not to have to think about these long trips on a Thursday night and then having to come back and play on a Sunday? Yeah, maybe. I mean, you look at West Ham, what they've done in the Premier League this season, and I suspect if they'd had to balance that with European football, as they may well do next season, it'd be more difficult. Um, West Ham now setting the bar for Arsenal. That's where where we are. But I think... um, I think that there would be something to be said for that. You know, the simplicity of being able to attack the Premier League and really try and climb up, you know, make a push for those European places... Of course, the other side of it, and it's sort of the boring side, but it's the side that you have to keep coming back to, is just the financial one of us being out of Europe entirely, you know. And the I mean, the Conference League can't play, pay a lot, though, can it really? I mean, I imagine it's all, is it probably luncheon vouchers or something? No, it's probably not a lot. But I mean, if you think about season ticket renewals have gone out this week, haven't they? And yeah. they're all going to be substantially lower. I think they're talking about two cup games in addition to the league games, as opposed to you would normally get all the sort of group stage games, um, you know, if you're in the Champions League or what have you. So, you know, I think the revenues will be down as a consequence. Um and TV money that comes in, that will affect things. But I think, to be honest, the financial situation at the club is almost so bad at this point that you kind of think, in the light of COVID, if there's ever a time to sort of take the hit, let the owners suck it up and cover costs, maybe this is it. Yeah. I mean, I guess season tickets will be merely expensive as opposed to exorbitant, which is something yes. to think about. Um uh, one more question before we uh, go to part two. Uh, Amy, would um, would things have been worse under Mourinho? 
my it, my reaction to that is not something I want to broadcast. <laughs> James, I'm asking you. Well, listen. I mean, uh, <sighs> I, I think I, I I think they. If you look at Tottenham, he got sat from Tottenham. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't going well for him there. So the answer with Mourinho is always, well, they would have been better for a bit and then they would have been worse. And that's the pattern of his managerial career. And I suspect it will continue in that way. Ian, it was never the answer. No, no. But perhaps experience was as opposed to a rookie, is what I would say to that. Yeah, but he's not the only experienced manager in the world. You've got to let go of this. (laughs) What's Arsene okay. Wenger up to? Does anyone know? Well, that would be a turn up, wouldn't it? But we'll uh, <laughs> maybe discuss that uh, in another podcast. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. Okay, so this is handbrake off. The Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. A couple of pieces I wanted to talk with James and Amy about. Uh, Oliver Kay wrote a piece about clear-outs, really. Um, The number of teams, Arsenal amongst them, who have large squads of players, uh, quite a lot of whom are surplus to requirements. Um, I mean, James, I know Mikel Arteta had a a press conference this morning uh, when he was talking about uh, having a big clear-out, but Oliver Kane makes the point that it's not that easy because who takes them off your hands? Yeah, it's really tricky. I mean, look at the case of, say, Mesut Ozil. I know it's a very particular case, but Arsenal are paying the vast majority of his wages until his contract expires at the end of the season. And I think if Arsenal want to move on some players this summer, they might end up doing similar things. From the conversations that I'm having with agents, I think there's a big expectation that the loan market will be very big again this summer. It's not great news if you're sort of planning to kind of raise a transfer war chest by selling off six or seven players. I just think it's going to be very difficult to extract the kinds of fees we've maybe become accustomed to. Um, but Mikel Arteta spoke this morning and said there's a huge amount of work to do this summer because there are players coming back from loans. There are a lot of players whose contract situations need addressing. Arsenal have got quite a number of players with one or two years remaining on their contracts. A number of them pretty important senior players too, you do worry. You know, you do worry. Last summer, it felt as if the scale of the work was almost too much for the department. Once they lost Raul Sanyei, we saw there were things that slipped through the net, things like William Saliba's loan not getting organised. A bit of support is coming into that area with the addition of Richard Garlic as the head of football operations. But there is still so, so much to do not a huge amount of time and not a huge amount of money swilling around either. So, yeah, I, I'm a little concerned about what we might get this summer. I mean, Amy, we, we essentially paid off the wages of uh, Mesut Ozil and uh, Saeed Kolasinac and I think Mustafi as well. And and there was a lot of talk about how it made the dressing room happier, but it, there, there, it, you didn't see much um, reflection of that on the pitch. What, do you think that this uh, second half of the season would have been... <laughs> Better if they'd have stayed. Where are you going with this, Ian? <laughs> Do you know what? As I was asking you that question, I thought, you know what? You're actually, maybe not. But <laughs> I'm just, I, I, you know, the, it, this this piece is not just about Arsenal. There's a lot of clubs that have the same problems. Um, Tottenham, Liverpool, there's quite a few. But we... We, I mean, we named seven players from our squad, possibly a Bamiyang, as we'd like to keep, and the rest you go, all right, we'll get rid of them if we get a good price and we can get a good replacement. That, with the money situation and, and the, the end of the pandemic, um, this is not an easy time to try and, and, and offload all these players. I'm looking around my room that I'm sitting in. I've got so much crap in this that I don't want in this room. I'm. I, I don't describe it. There's piles of rubbish that have, some of it has been here for, I don't know, two years or so. It's so difficult getting rid of stuff. Car boot sale, Amy. <laughs> we need to get the players no, sat no. on a trestle table <laughs> in the school playground on a Sunday morning. Who give it. me 20 quid Listen, for uh, Gwen Doozy? <laughs> this is where we are in, in a kind of footballing terms. We... We really would like to clear out all this crap, but we don't know where to start. Like, the market is going to be so difficult. And in the end, 
as has been the case for lots of recent years, Arsenal would quite like to make some money out of players they no longer want. But that's slightly fantastical in a fair amount of cases. I, you know, I do think that there's, you know, on the for sale list, how many of them are going to generate the kind of money that Arsenal would want? That's a, a worry, uh, yeah. I think. So yeah. I think... I think James touched upon it when he said this might be the moment for the Cronkies to re- recognise that it's a time where they have to back the club a little bit financially because a clear out is really necessary. Uh, and I think that if there is a way of kind of trying to create a slightly different culture in the club, it would be help helpful to have a feeling of a new chapter uh, in the dressing room to an extent. They've yeah. made great inroads in the last, you know, two to three windows in getting rid of people who uh, they didn't particularly welcome that much either in the team or around the place uh, in some cases. But there's still a bit to go and just a lot of fresh faces could really help, I think. It could really give a different atmosphere potentially. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be surprising to figure out that there's a bunch of not that happy players maybe in in the camp at the moment because it's human nature that uh, when things aren't going very well um either people are going to start blaming other people or they're going to say oh i don't want this I, I, I want out of this situation so it's not just a case of necessarily that arsenal want players to go there'll be a certain amount of cases where players want to go as well but again they've got fine new clubs they've got to find new deals uh, there's an awful lot to be agreed um and it all feels very difficult. So, uh, yeah, back to the car boot sale. Um, everything must go. <laughs> you can do a job lot, maybe tour three at the same time. Have, have Xhaka and you can also have Gunduzi and Mkhitaryan. Oh, he's gone, hasn't he? Torreira. <laughs> it's hard to keep track, isn't it, really? Um, James, you wrote a piece this week uh, is Arteta learning quickly enough specifically referencing um, how frustrating it was watching Bukayo Saka attacking from left back and how good he looked and he was and there was four or five times when he got in behind the West Brom defence and you thought it's too late now it's too late we're out of the semi-final why why did he not do that do you think I mean is the conclusion that Arteta is a bit of a slow learner or is he just a bit reliant on certain players. What what do you think? I think there's a trait in Arteta that he he can be quite imaginative and quite inventive to find a solution that works. But once it's worked, I think he's quite slow to move on from it. I think he he gets quite wedded to systems and tactical plans, perhaps even past the point where they've been a little bit worked out. I think that was kind of true of the three of the back system that Arsenal maybe held on to for a bit too long. And I think it was almost certainly the case with Granite Xhaka at left back. You know, he came in, played well against Liège, played well against Sheffield United. And we thought, here we go, he might be onto something. But pretty quickly, opposition started to figure out, well, listen, if you run at him, he doesn't like it enormously. Arsenal aren't overlapping as much on that side. They're not as much of an attacking threat. And yet, Xhaka played seven games on the bounce, starting as left back. Um... I think it would have been either would have been seven or would have been eight had he been fit for the second leg against Villarreal. And I just think that, you know, ultimately he will regret that decision, Arteta, because not only did Saka really impress uh, against West Brom, albeit, you know, I think an inferior opposition to Villarreal, but also Nicola Pepe playing off the right hand side showed that he can be a real threat in that position. And that's all it would have taken. You know, you move Pepe over to the right, put Saka in at left back. Really strange because I think. As good as Saka has been going forward, he, he was excellent in that role for Arteta last season. And it doesn't massively inhibit him from going forward. You know, he's no. able to really push on there and be a serious threat. As we saw, he created the goal brilliantly for Smith Rowe. Might have created a couple more. So, yeah, certainly the absence of Tierney hurt him. But I think adhering to an idea kind of passed its sell-by date a little bit has cost Arteta there. And, and maybe he isn't learning quite quickly enough. And if he isn't, it might come down to an element of hubris. I think, you know, Arteta presents this idea of himself, 
my sense is anyway that he presents an idea of himself as kind of being very comfortable maybe almost to make up for that inexperience he feels a need to kind of present a sense that he knows what he's doing he's very much in control and I can see why on day one when he walked into the club he needed that you know you need to convince players you know you're not a kid you're not a junior you're not a nobody you're not work experience but I also think there's another side to that you know there's another aspect to it where you have to kind of admit a willingness to accept when you get it wrong and to make changes when they're, they're required. And I think we see that even within games. Sometimes he's slow to change the shape or to make Sabios. substitutions. Sabios yeah, and substitutions a great example. Yeah. And uh, I, I do just wonder if he might not be doing himself any favours sometimes. No, I mean, I mean, James earlier, Amy said about you know Guardiola being just a genius, and part of the genius surely is adaptability and and seeing how things are going and going. We need to change that, and as James said, not being afraid to say, well, I made a mistake there, and I'm going to change this sooner rather than in say the seventy fifth, eightieth minute. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's not really comparing like for like. I mean. Guardiola, for his early management years, had a team full of some of the best players in the world. That's not to say that he wasn't a genius, but Arteta is working with quite a flawed squad. Let's be honest. Um, whether he's, you can only judge him on what he's doing. I don't think there's much point in comparing to this or that or the other. What he's, you can you can ask yourself the question if he could be could and should be managing the current squad of players and the condition of the club better than he is. But that's a question for him and him alone, really. And I'm interested to know, sometimes I, I, I'm curious about what he really, really thinks in his heart of hearts, because he comes across often in press conferences as being um, quite adamant about how he sees things and not really someone who can turn around and say, maybe I can learn from this, or maybe there's things we could have done better. Um, it's a lot more of the like, I like the way we controlled the game. And you think, really? <laughs> or, uh, yeah, I didn't say uh, that. Yeah. It, 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 it's, Tottenham it's, away. It's is, putting across oh. slightly different messages and all managers that, you know, will do that to a degree and try and control the message. But I just wonder if there's some, if really deep down he looks at his own performance. Wenger always used to say he looked in the mirror at the end of the season and that was, you know, he would be his harshest critic. And I don't know if Mikel Arteta looks in the mirror and is his harshest critic or not. But when you're young and you're learning, there's a lot to be said for you've got to have courage of your convictions. But there's also a lot to be said for like taking lessons on board and adapt, adapting and absorbing things and finding new ways of doing things. And I feel like the sample size is, to an extent is still quite small with Mikel. But, it, you know, it's working on the basis that it's pretty clear that the Cronkies don't want to change their manager at the moment. He will be Arsenal's manager this year. Is he going to manage Arsenal in the same way next year? That's really important because if he is, then you know he's quite intransigent. Um, if he isn't, then I would applaud, I think a lot of people would applaud that flexibility and that capacity to learn and that, you know, have that um, inquisitiveness, have that self-examination that you're constantly asking questions, thinking, am I doing the best I can? What could I do better? Who could I ask if I don't know? How can I improve? How much value might it be for Mikel to finally have something like a pre-season? You know, just in terms yes. of the time, yes. the space, as Amy says, to reflect, to go through that process of kind of self-examination. He's kind of been fighting fires since the day he walked in the door at Arsenal. True. And I do wonder if, you know, in the absence of maybe someone with senior football experience to kind of have that conversation with him, how much he might benefit from just a bit of breathing space and that opportunity to look in the mirror. I, I think that we, it's reasonable to expect that such a young manager can improve, but it's also very reasonable to say that he needs to, if he's going to keep his job. 
quite. Um, let's have a uh, quick game of random ask generator. Uh, this is when Tao, our producer, comes up with a player from Arsenal's past, and we talk about him for a bit. Um, the random ask generated this morning, this afternoon, is one Alex Song. Uh, Amy, let's start with you. Memories of Alex Song. Uh, a car pulled up outside my house a, a, a few years ago uh, on a match day and out came Alex uh, Song and his wife and children. And I noticed that they were parked somewhere they were going to get a parking ticket because there's <laughs> residents parking all around where we are quite close <laughs> to the ground. So I quickly went and grabbed... Um, some vouchers. <laughs> did you give him a permit? I did, yeah. And and there was a look of total confusion as to what I was doing. Um, and I tried to explain to him that, you know, you, you can park here, but you get a ticket unless you fill in these. I sort of had to fill, help him fill out the vouchers and so on. And uh, they were very nice about it. And um, he seemed to be very hands-on. He was getting a buggy all put together for his baby. And uh, yeah, that was my um, outside, you know, Worlds colliding, seeing someone in a totally different place, Alex Song moment. I remember actually that game because he played with a freedom that I hadn't seen him play with before. But he knew that he was, you know, securely and uh, legally parked. And I think uh, it certainly helped his play. Well, it's t uh, it was the polar opposite to the old days of leaving your car somewhere like Villa Park or Anfield and some little kids coming out going, Gives a, <laughs> a pound. Mind for your car. your car. Like yeah. they really guarded your car all game. <laughs> yeah, give us a pound or I'll vandalise your car. Pretty James, much. what about you? Do you know, I, I remember one of Alex Song's first Arsenal appearances. He was picked for a game at Fulham uh, and desperately struggled. And I think he was actually substituted at half-time and it was one of those games where even the away fans were kind of, you know, calling for it. He just looked absolutely out of his depth. And I don't think I've ever seen a player look so far off the level and yet progress to become a kind of Premier League starting player. And get it was bought by Barcelona. Yeah, it was quite an extraordinary rise because it started so low. And honestly, you looked at this guy and you just thought, well, he's got he's he looks slow, he's got no technical ability. And yet by the time he left, he was kind of, you know, clipping beautiful passes through to Van Persie. It was strange, but I'll always reflect on that. And it was something that Wenger, you know, we're speaking about Mikel Arteta and his potential. Arsene Wenger always said, you should never put limits on somebody's potential. And I think Alex Song kind of exemplified that because he appeared to achieve things that looked way beyond what you would initially have thought. Um, and it was kind of a testament to Wenger's faith in some respects. I know that he had his flaws as a player. He wasn't perfect at all. But in terms of the way he started and where he ended up, it was quite an extraordinary journey. Well, I, I mean, that's interesting you say that because, yes, you, you're right. You shouldn't put limits on on uh, on players in that sense. But I, I used to watch him wander off from his holding midfield position and think, you're the furthest player forward, mate. Where are you going? Where are you going? But if I have one strong memory of Alex Song, it's the pass to Thierry Henry against Leeds. Um, it was, I mean, he, he, Henry looked at him and went there and he went, OK. And it was a lovely pass. Henry also obviously made it into a perfect pass by that first touch and that finish. But um, I loved I loved that moment. And, uh, and he will always have a, a little place in my heart because he helped in that moment. Amy? Um, I have to admit, uh, just out of curiosity, I just I don't normally do this, obviously, being playing clean. But I had a quick look at Wikipedia just now, um, just to see if he's still playing. Oh, I know this out, story. It's great. <laughs> well, you might know more than me, but according to to Wikipedia, he, he appears to be playing for a team called Arta slash Solar Seven from Djibouti, um, which is great. As far and I, and I, I admire that you know to keep playing and keep playing and keep playing. He's just led like... that team to their first Djiboutian title. I oh believe. yes, good on him. Get What's in, the parking Alex. like in Djibouti? <laughs> <laughs> it's all unrestricted. It's incredible, actually. That's why he, <laughs> he went there. It. Yeah, he yeah. Just leave his car How anywhere. much of a great athletic piece would that be in different times? Go off to Djibouti to see Alex oh. Song lift that title. How old is he now then? Thirty-three. It's not that old, is it? He's not that old. 
yet. I mean, James, any others? I mean, that's a great one. To, but yeah, I mean, any others? the pass for Omri is brilliant, but there was a period, I touched on it briefly, but where he had a kind of telepathic understanding with Robin Van Persie. And, was that the volley? Did he pass that Yeah, pass there was one the at volley? Anfield, yeah, where he oh, clipped oh, the pass over the top. Yeah. Incredible. He did it several times. Um, and actually, I watched the first 5-2 for an athletic piece against Spurs a while back, and Alex Song's passing was pretty instrumental in that game too. He just had this ability, almost like a sort of, you know, golf, like chip it over the defender. And it was a, it was a very handy weapon at a certain time, even if his defensive responsibilities were less well covered for. So um, I remember that very fondly. I'm trying to think of anything else. I, there was an interview he gave not too long ago, which was absolutely fascinating, where he kind of said... It's very rare you hear a footballer say this, but he said, yeah, I, I went to Barcelona and I didn't play much, but I went for the money. He was like, you know, it was a fantastic uh, opportunity for me <laughs> to sort of secure my finan- my financial future for me and Why my family. Not? Why not? Listen, I appreciate footballers' honesty sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't... I, I don't know if we should end on that. <laughs> really? <laughs> no. Alex, decent what player. Was his... Mercenary. <laughs> what was his song... Wasn't it something to do with song? song Alex to... Dimitri song belong. Oh, well, that, that's Alex. <laughs> there was that song, one. Um, <laughs> that was from yeah, a, was... another. Oh, we've only got one song. That, yeah, was, that was it. it. Yeah, we've only got, we've one, got song. one song. Great song. Yes. But, you know, was, good it, on him. He was, it was, there was, it was another song's nephew, wasn't he? It was Rigobert's song. Rigobert's song, correct? Is that nephew, right? I believe. Yeah. Outstanding. Uh, while we're on the subject of songs, then let's have uh, a song from each of you to uh, to finish this podcast, Amy. Well, for the second week running, I'm tempted to go for Tricky's Hell is Around the Corner. Um, <laughs> but, That's just a permanent song now for the yeah, next exactly. few years. Yeah, exactly. I'll have that on loop for the rest of time. Um, otherwise, what about uh, any one of a number of songs called Revolution? But what about the Beatles? Yeah. You say you want a revolution Well, you know It's either that or the cult. James? Uh, Do you know what? Now that the season is sort of over and we're all looking forward and kind of thinking how might the squad be, you know, reimagined in the summer, I'm going to go for in the summertime in the spirit of optimism. I'm I'm still sort of angry really so I'm having uh, Ian Dury and the Blockheads what a waste <laughs> <laughs> which is I love the song but uh, sort of reflects my mood a little bit that's it for the um, Handbrake Off podcast brought to you by The Athletic thank you James thank you Amy thank you to Tayo as well I'm Ian Stone and thank you for listening see you soon <laughs> Athletic.